This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to AI in Industry. We continue our theme here in this month of November on developing your corporate artificial intelligence strategy. We heard last week from Carlos Escapa of AWS about his take on kind of a practical approach to thinking through your initial AI priorities. And this week, we actually start with the data. We interview Adam Bonifield this week. Adam is the VP of Artificial Intelligence at Airbus. He's one of the youngest executives at the firm. Airbus is, I think, something like a $60 billion company every year. Obviously, an older firm, not born in the age of AI. So I speak with Adam about how he likes to think through starting a corporate AI strategy. And he likes to begin with the data assets and goes through a bit of a process of how to take account of those assets, what kinds of people need to be part of that conversation to really unlock the most fruitful. AI applications within an established company. Obviously, Adam, pretty high up here at Airbus, uh, great senior talent and glad to have his perspective. And I think this is a unique one for essentially anybody tuned in to think through when they're looking at their own organization. So without further ado, we're going to fly in. This is Adam Bonifield, VP of AI at Airbus here on AI and Industry. So Adam, where I wanted to kick things off is really just around the steps or the phases in constructing an AI strategy. When you mm. think about sort of how to put an AI strategy together done well, how would you break that down? To break down into different phases. Yeah, that's that's the interesting thing because a lot of people, you know, AI, I should say in general, is this, you know, obviously very hyped technology. There's yeah. a lot of, there's a tremendous amount of excitement to deploy it. And if you don't do it the right way, you you kind of mess the whole thing up, I think. You know, and, and I think a lot of people get very excited about deploying, you know, fancy algorithms to sort of make sense of basically any business problem they have. And they don't realize that a lot of the dirty work that goes into building those those algorithms. So to me, technically, the first investments you're really making are are not really in AI at all. They're really just in data. So you need really a data strategy, or I would say kind of a data engineering strategy before you can get to kind of having an AI strategy. So that's that's usually, you know, depending on the industry, it's collecting a lot of your data, sort of usually having some kind of data lake strategy, and then also investing a lot in kind of engineering that data and making it usable. So if you take a company like Airbus, for us, that basically meant, you know, collecting a lot of our engineering data, a lot of our industrial manufacturing data, installing sensors across our aircraft. So we collected, started collecting about 24,000 parameters coming from our airplanes um, and downloading them and uploading them to the cloud. And then, of course, like, uh, you know, we made, a, in our case, a generational investment in the broader industry. So we started combining a lot of our customer data and, and a lot of our supplier data in a large data platform in partnership with Palantir. And so that basically set us up for success because if you think about it, you know, the reason that companies like Google and Facebook are investing tremendously in all of their consumer applications is, is just to collect data. And as an industrial company, you have this incredible advantage of sitting on all of this data. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, just from it, operations, it's yours, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. Just just to start with. I mean, you don't you don't have to convince users to give it to you. You know, you have this massive advantage. But usually the problem is just that it's not well organized. And, um, and and of course, you have to secure it and make it available. I mean, if you are collecting sensor data from tens of thousands of parameters on an aircraft, there's just a massive engineering challenge in just making sense of it and, and ingesting it and making it available for analysis. I, I like where you're headed here. And I, I'm just going to poke into this uh, with you is you're saying that, you know, off the get go, 
getting our data in order, even having a, you know, you mentioned data strategy is, is going to be box check number one. In order to do that well, you've got to answer a lot of pretty high level questions that probably involve a lot of perspective, namely, you know, which data do we want to prioritize, you know, harmonizing and making accessible, right? Because you could say you're going to do it with all your data, but you're going to have some that's more valuable than others. In addition, yes. you're going to need to think through the kinds of features and the kinds of accessibility and interoperability of this data. And to some degree, you're already going to have to have use cases in mind, right? Like for manufacturing, yes. you could just say, have it all and have it stored. But it's like, well, mm. you know, you're probably at least thinking about predictive maintenance. You're probably at least mm. thinking about, you know, a couple use cases. What would we need to get value? And then someone needs to have the business context and know what value is. So even just having a quote unquote data strategy isn't so much as knowing how to store it. You really have to think through those problems. What does that process look like? Because I imagine that would involve more than just data scientists. That sounds like a pretty, especially a company your size, pretty robust process. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right and very well put. So I think the biggest mistake a lot of companies make is they tend to look for AI problems. So for a company like Airbus, maybe that would be autonomous flight, where it's well recognized that essentially advanced machine learning techniques are the techniques you need to solve the problem. Yep. And I say that's a big mistake because AI is such a ubiquitous technology and is useful for unpacking so many different types of problems that we tend to m sort of miss a lot of the big opportunities if we look for kind of advanced problems to solve instead of really basic problems to solve. Because usually the basic problems to solve are where the biggest cost centers and biggest value streams in the company are. So, you know, in a, in a company like Airbus, it's the cost of quality nonconformity issues. So just making sure everything we do is of high quality. It's optimizing our logistics and industrial processes, right? It's, you know, making sure our engineers can reduce the lead time that it takes to um, design and, and test aircraft by using some of these more advanced analysis techniques. And it's it's making sense of our data that that tends to be the biggest um, suck on, on our time and efficiency. Um, and then looking at a whole bunch of different strategic priorities like safety and sustainability and, and things like this. So these are the big problems in our company. And basically, with all of these problems, we have quite large machine learning or what we would call AI projects deployed within them that are attacking them. And so I think really, you know, you, you start with the big problems in the company. And in terms of kind of how to prioritize engage people, you said it perfectly. It's not a data science job, although, you know, in our team, we have, you know, well over 100 data scientists working in this space, but a lot of them have very mixed profiles. So, you know, you really need to get into sort of like, you know, building a good team that can help engage the business and really do a lot of the problem discovery work and, and recruiting a lot of profiles that aren't pure data science profiles. They're technical roles who are quite good at doing sort of like this entrepreneurship and, and sort of business development type activity. But if I can tell you a kind of funny story, because when yeah, I first came for to the it, company, go for it. you know, it's, it was interesting because we, we took like a very basic problem. Like you mentioned, predictive maintenance. You take a part uh, like landing gear on, on one of our planes. And so you start with a question sort of like, uh, when will this part fail? And so depending on who you ask that question to, you'll get very, very different answers. It's a known problem in the company. The, one of the biggest challenges we have is to assess the sort of life cycle of a part. But depending on who you talk to in the company, they'll give you different responses. So if you talk to an engineer, they'll talk about 
you know, the loads to stress engineering models that we do, looking at the sort of theoretical survivability of the part under certain conditions and predicting failure modes using this engineering data, and they'll give you one answer. And then if you ask someone from operations or services, they'll say, no, 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 that answer is totally wrong. And they'll say, it doesn't matter, you know, what theoretically the part will survive with. You need to look at the operational history of the part, right? Because different landing gears are subjected yeah. to different conditions. Yep. And so that person will kind of say, okay, but let's let's dig into this other type of data, you know, and, and they'll say, okay, you know, if you look at this particular route and based on these conditions and the history of repairing that part, we can actually make a different prediction and they'll give you a sort of second answer. And then you, you know, so you started getting different answers for different, for the same question. Then you get, you know, you take the same question to somebody who's in, uh, you know, related to supply chain and logistics and they'll say, well, they're both wrong. You know, it doesn't matter when the part will fail. It just, you know, the real question is when you have a replacement for the part. So who cares if it fails tomorrow or the day after, if you're not going to get a replacement for six months, you need to replace that part right now. And so to your point, you know, you start off with this sort of simple, basic problem that the company's been working on for ages. And you realize that actually, the problem's still somewhat unsolved, because you have different parts of the company coming up with different answers. And I think what that highlights is that a lot of these advanced techniques, the sort of AI driven techniques, that can make sense of a lot of heterogeneous data, that are not as reliant on one analytical model, but can kind of be robust enough to survive a lot of different analytical approaches. So for example, like the analysis we do around predictive maintenance using deep learning kind of works just as easily with engineering data as it does with supply chain data, as it does with sort of the sort of service history data, and so on and so forth. These techniques, therefore, allow you to answer really old questions in new ways and reconcile the sort of analytical differences that divide different silos in the company. And so that's why I really think of the technology itself as quite ubiquitous, as being kind of very robust and flexible. And so it can basically apply to even the oldest, most basic problems, even problems where you think, yeah, surely this answer exists already. You end up finding new advanced approaches that can produce a better answer to old questions. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, like you said, you would think, okay, when will this part fail? Well, that's not even the most complicated question I could think of. Surely we're going to be okay if we ask that. But like you said, you throw it by a few people and you're going to get a tremendous number of different answers. And now you have to think about based on all those different people's answers, what kind of data now should you be storing? What kind of features should exactly. you make sure are labeled? What kinds of, you know, regularity should you be ingesting this data in order to catch this thing before it breaks? You have to ask that question after every conversation. And so even something yes. about a single part, you know, hopefully those lessons transfer to other parts, but even something at that level, you have to do that much thinking. So let's really pull this back. I'm imagining, you know, some of the enterprise listeners are, you know, thinking about, their own companies, thinking about the kinds of data yeah. that they might have. And they're saying, well, geez, man, if I want to come up with a data strategy like Adam's talking about, where would I even start knowing that all of those things are are complicated? Like, yeah, how, how do you go about assessing your whole data ecosystem when there's that many rabbit holes to to take you down? Yeah, it's a great question because it's both kind of a blessing and a curse that you've got these very powerful techniques. Because as you said, you can basically apply it to any data set. But at the same time, you have no idea where to begin. 
So, so this, this is a great point. And, and I think from at least just speaking from our perspective, there's, there's a few things you tend to look for. First of all, you look for the canonical data sets, the stuff where it's really vital to the core operation of the company, where basically, you know, if you go sort of function by function throughout the company, they can more or less tell you the, the data sets that they refer to every day. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you, but you need that, that outside opinion, huh? You need to, to have the, the people running those functional departments to kind of be talking with data scientists to kind of hash out that conversation of, hey, over here, what's important to you? Like, how does that conversation go? Yeah, it usually starts with sort of what do you use every day? And usually it'll be something like, yeah, we kind of, you know, we rely on this massive data set to solve this problem. But basically, every time we look at it, we have to do a bunch of manual curation. It's very noisy. It tends to be bad. You know, there's mistakes in it. Or we'll say, oh, yeah, we have uh, people whose job it is to kind of enter data into the system, but it's poorly organized or it's unstructured or something like this. So they'll sort of give you the problem statement along with the value. So they'll say, this is super valuable to us. But at the same time, there's a whole bunch of issues that prevent us from making sense of it. And that's where you get into some of the magical value behind a lot of these machine learning techniques where you can take very unstructured data sets. So maybe, for example, you know, you just have tremendous amounts of publicly shareable emails that come into your company. Or maybe you have documents with tons and tons of instructions or, or technical specifications or something like this, where it basically takes your analysts lots and lots of time to make sense of them. And so you could sort of say, okay, on the one hand, I recognize how valuable this is. But on the other hand, based on these conversations, I'm already learning what are the problems with them. Because they'll usually say, yeah, the problem is they're noisy. The problem is that they're not organized. Or it would yeah, be really great if yeah. you know, we can get something like this. And this is the kind of role for some of these. I think this is where you start getting into this natural synergy between someone in your business and a data scientist. Because a data scientist is quite good then at picking apart, well, okay, so how can we translate what you have today into something much more useful. But I think it starts with those conversations with the business from their perspective, what are the biggest problems that they see? I think, again, a big mistake a lot of teams make I've seen is they start sort of with the solution they want to build for what feels like it's doable today, as opposed to starting with the business problem and the data sets themselves and then imagining what can be done from there. Because a lot of the time, like the solutions aren't clear to the business because they've never imagined that, you know, you can translate, yeah. uh, you know, 10 a petabyte of emails into perfectly structured analytics, right? That's, that's sort of, you know, not something they're paid to think about, but it's something that people like us are paid to figure out. And and that's the challenge, right? As you had mentioned that everybody can kind of go for what the obvious use cases are. And I think that's, the the issue is that you know you have data scientists that understand at least at least at the level of the the science what kind of data might realistically be able to do what but they aren't as hip to the nuances of the business problems and the business operations on a day to day then you have the business people who aren't as knowledgeable about what specifically AI can unlock. They just don't have a good grasp of conceptually what AI can do. And that's part of why we have the podcast is try to open their minds on on these real issues and and also to present them with bajillions of use cases from gigantic companies and small companies and just show them the landscape. But but that you know, most people, if they don't listen to the show for a long, long time or, or study this stuff, won't be able to think outside of what the big 
PR buzz use cases are, right? Like in, in, yeah. in your field, you know, you just ask a business person, well, what could AI do for us? I guess our planes could drive themselves, right? They, they wouldn't, right. they wouldn't guess anything about cybersecurity, right? They wouldn't guess anything exactly. about nuanced details about estimating the lifetime of different random engine parts, right? Unless they've done a lot of study as to AI and heavy industry, they wouldn't really be thinking about that. So, so it really seems like the person who'd be in charge of having these conversations in these different departments and pulling all that information together, that would have to be one of these unicorn people who can speak both languages or a team that can speak both languages in order to wrangle the business context and the core data assets from all these different departments. And it sounds like for you, that's got to happen before we build a strategy that's worth anything. In an ideal world, is it a small team of folks that have both sides of skill that kind of go to these functional departments and, and rope all this stuff together before we bring it into the strategy room? Or, or how does that roll out? Because it's, it's obviously, you know, a lot of work in a big company. Yeah, it's true. So I think it's two things in terms of team structure. As you said, it's, it's sort of a bunch of T-shaped people. So it doesn't have to be exclusively data scientists. Like on our team, we have product managers, we have computer scientists, we have people whose really job is just to do that business development piece and scoping and, and sort of business value analysis. But they're all sort of T-shaped. So for example, a lot of these guys who are doing product management are themselves quite technical. They have data science backgrounds. I mean, something that we pride ourselves in at Airbus is we have a, a very uh, sort of deep professional training course in AI and analytics that we're going to have 800 graduates from by the end of the year. So that's, I mean, that's, in our opinion, quite a, a colossal achievement that, you know, we've basically made this investment in upskilling all different kinds of people. And in fact, many of those people have gone on to take on roles within our central AI and analytics delivery teams. So these are people who have backgrounds in engineering and in services and, you know, and, and but then, you know, go on and to build expertise in computer science and data science. And, and that's really, really, really important for the reason that you described, that it's basically this unicorn combination of business knowledge and domain expertise and technical expertise. And I, and I just wish more industrial companies would take on board this mentality of realizing that in some ways we are so much more privileged than the largest tech companies in the world in solving business problems because the kinds of expertise we have in our data and just the access we have to our business problems experts and data allow us to tackle AI problems that none of these other big companies can touch. And so I think sometimes there's an instinct to kind of say, oh, well, we're an old company and not digitally native. And so we can't figure this stuff out. But then actually, you know, you see large tech companies coming to industrial companies like Airbus and saying, okay, what can we do together because of because of that really, really important expertise. So that expertise is is super important to integrate into the team for sure. And then just the other thing I was going to mention is just the geographical and sort of transversal spread of the team. So in a large company like Airbus, it's a global company. And so our team, for example, is spread across four different countries, going to be five different countries and and really has, you know, sort of reaches into every single part of the company. And so, you know, that's sort of why I think a lot of these technical teams are themselves transformation teams, because, you know, ultimately, in order to accomplish the goals we have to unlock all of these new technologies, you really need to have this mission of transforming the company while you do it. And in fact, that's probably one of the biggest deliverables that you can leave the company with. 100%. We talk all the time about core capabilities. It's your first three or four stabs at doing AI 
are just not that likely to transform your business. But having a team that contextually understands how we should treat data, how we can unlock data, where we might use it, that, that can work together to sort of, you know, in a nimble way, adapt to the era of AI with this education element that you're talking about. That's the all-purpose AI application is having people that know what the heck it is, how we can leverage it, and having a lot of eyes open about where those opportunities are. Uh, Yeah, nothing like that. And it sounds like you guys are putting forth a lot of effort in that education direction. Yeah. And the funny thing is, you know, no matter how many hundreds of millions of, of euros you're able to deliver, you know, you look back on the accomplishments and realize the biggest, most permanent change you'll be making is transforming the teams that you're working with. And this is part of, I think, what makes this moment in history so special that a lot of the same things that make these advanced technologies powerful are just really amazing transformational vectors for any large company. So for example, the idea of working in a more agile, dynamic way, where the user is positioned as sort of the expert in the process, or, you know, just democratizing expertise to allow for, you know, really, you know, the engineers and technical experts and sort of, you know, most creative people in the company to be at the center of building the most valuable technologies. And then just different ways of working, you know, that that it tends to be the case that in order to make this technology valuable, flat teams with a lot of democratic governance tends to work well and and light processes that you know, are more outcome driven tend to be the fastest way to something great. So, you know, all these things are super, super helpful to embed within, you know, a large uh, company that's quite process oriented, because it's, it's sort of like a healthy uh, injection of, of some, you know, values that that help the company transform. Big time. Uh, and, and hopefully for the folks who are tuned in here, these lessons are sort of sinking home again. Hardly do we ever end an episode and make AI strategy seem like it's going to be an easy job for anybody, no. but at, at least people know what it is going to involve. And at least that grind, the, oh man, I got to pull everybody together. Oh man, I have to have so many cross-functional conversations. Oh man, at least, you know, we're, we're kind of getting your thoughts, Adam, on why that's valuable for the long term, what kind of value that can unlock uh, in the long term. Obviously, you folks have to deal with so much of that at a company your size. So I'm really glad we got to have your opinion here. So I know that's all we have for time, but Adam, thank you so much for sharing your insights here on AI and industry. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for tuning into this episode of AI in Industry. I should mention we actually have a new short PDF guide on three ways to detect artificial intelligence trends in any sector. When it comes to building a strategy, it's important to be able to not just think about the applications that are getting retweeted and blasted in the press, but really to detect the underlying patterns of where AI is unlocking value within your sector or the adjacent sectors. And this short guide, three ways to detect AI trends in any sector, is intended to help you do just that. You can go to emerge.com slash T3, that's E-M-E-R-J dot com slash the letter T, T is in Tyrannosaurus, and then three, just the number three, emerge.com slash T3, and you can download that PDF for free. So if you're listening to the podcast, you're interested in AI strategy and being able to add value to that conversation, uh, you don't want to miss this download, emerge.com slash T3. Also, be sure to stick around. We talked to Adam at Airbus today, but next week, we speak with the chief artificial intelligence officer of one of the largest defense contracts in the world. Obviously, in the defense space, there's a lot of considerations 
around data, privacy, and security. And that actually does play a role when it comes to building a robust AI strategy. And so you're not going to want to miss the insights on that front as well if you're in the enterprise and are concerned about security yourself. So be sure to be tuned in for our last episode in the Building Your Corporate AI Strategy series. And that is next week. I look forward to catching you here on AI in Industry. 